Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and I get to host this very first Burn It All Down best of 2021 of three. There will be three of these as we take a little pause for the holidays and the end of the year and think and reflect upon what's been a really difficult time for a whole lot of people. We're also going to try to think through some of the things that we're excited for in 2022 or resolutions that we have. And I can't say that I've come up with any good resolutions. I do this every year. We talk about it on the show, and I am just the absolute worst at that game. Just to say my resolution is to keep on keeping on, to try to not let my judgment of others affect my empathy for them. And to keep doing cool ass shit on Burn It All Down. But I am looking forward to, and I think this won't surprise anyone, the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. I'm not looking forward to watching Qatar be able to sports wash this tournament. But I am really interested in the conversations that it keeps bringing up now that a lot of athletes Well, now that they've qualified as national teams, and a lot of athletes have taken this moment to try to talk about human rights and the violence that has been foisted upon a number of migrant laborers, particularly from South Asia, from Nepal, in Qatar, and to try to sort of hold FIFA as much as they can accountable for sullying the game that we love by if not condoning, certainly perpetuating the status quo of human rights abuses in all kinds of places. I still, however, am looking forward to Qatar in 2022. It's a tournament that still takes place every four years. There's going to be wonderful stories, beautiful stories, and I can't wait to actually watch the best football in the world. So... When we do these episodes, we choose the ones that we learned from or we were moved by all types of reasons. It's hard. It's actually really hard to nail them down. For mine, I chose episode 198 for the segment portion of this called The NCAA is Still Laughably Sexist. Nothing has changed, sadly, (laughs) since that episode aired. I wish that I could say that it did. And this episode for me is important for a couple reasons. First, we are going into the 50th anniversary of Title IX. One of the important points that Jessica Luther makes on this episode is that no school is really compliant with Title IX. And you're going to hear Lindsay, Amira, and Jess discuss the ridiculously unequal treatment of women athletes in the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament. But the thing that I love about this episode is you can hear Lindsay, Amira, and Jess switch back and forth between their excitement around the tournament, analyzing the bullshit behind it, and really speaking about women athletes with an articulation and a depth that we rarely see in sports coverage of women's tournaments. So enjoy this discussion. 
So this week as, or last week, I should say, as we all got ready for, um, you know, the NCAA tournament for the first time now in two years, I know I was focused on how wide open this women's tournament feels and just feeling really, really pumped to, you know, ignoring the COVID voice in my head, but just feeling excited for to see these players get this chance at the stage um as someone who's followed maryland really closely they're looking so good and so i've been hyping them up to people being like you're overlooking them and then the story changes when um the visuals are shared it started by a stanford athletic trainer and then the players themselves started sharing them as well of the women's weight room and i'm Doing some air quotes over the word room and the word weight. Um, yeah, so we we saw a photo of this tiny little weight rack <laughs> uh, compared to what their male counterparts had, which was a huge room filled with weights that um, had clearly a lot of time and attention and resources been put into. And it was an example of how uh, the women... Uh, women's tournament is not getting the same treatment as their male counterparts. And I think the images struck a chord for a lot of reasons that we can get into, but of course they weren't the end of the story. Then CAA came out and said, well, it was a space issue. Um, and then of course we see the videos <laughs> of the fact that um, it was this tiny rack of weights in the middle of this big open space. So it was obviously not a space issue. But the inequities ran deeper, um, as they always do, um, from the swag bags being completely, um, you know, so much less for the women, to the testing being different, um, to the rules um, and regulations and care that the, the female athletes are being given. And I just kind of want to open up the floor to say, like, what for you all, what stuck out to you the most? Uh, you know, we talk about inequity so much on the show. And but it's it's kind of rare to have a week where, like, all the all the uh, talking is done for us like through these visuals, like where it's you can point to something so stark. Um, and so it's been it's been interesting. Jess, what stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, lots of things. It, it it was kind of that that feeling of like it's so blatant. How do you even talk about it? Because like, how do you describe something that's so obvious? I will say, of course, because I've been working on LSU and I've been thinking a lot about athletic departments' responses to gendered violence. And one of the things I get asked like all the time is, how does this stuff? happen. And when I look at this, I think constantly of the spectrum that all these athletes are on, because of course, in a lot of these cases, including at LSU, the people reporting harm are athletes themselves. They're just female athletes. And so thinking about like the clear hierarchies of who matters and how we can see that in something as basic as a weight room, uh, but also when we do these terrible reports about like how, who gets valued, whose experience and, uh, and worth matters in these departments. It's really clear here. And I just want to mention one thing in particular. They're obviously playing these games and these, you know, quote unquote bubbles, the one in Indianapolis for the men and the one in San Antonio for the women. And as everything was coming out, Gino Ariema told reporters that the men's team are for COVID testing, that they're using daily PCR tests, whereas the women's team are using these daily antigen tests, which are not as 
good at detecting COVID as what the men are getting, but the men's tests are just so much more expensive. And I was talking to my friend Dan Solomon, who lives here and has been reporting on COVID stuff in Texas, and he immediately said to me that this is weird because it's in San Antonio. And I'm just going to quote what Dan actually tweeted. So he wrote, one additional piece of relevant context is that San Antonio, where the women's tournament's being held, is one of the few cities in the country that has a lab that is specifically built to process PCR COVID tests cheaply and within hours rather than days. There's a very obvious equity issue in using expensive, high-quality rapid PCR tests for men and cheap, lower-quality rapid antigen tests for women. But if they tried which is always key here, right? If they tried, they could at least attempt to split the difference by processing conventional PCR tests quickly in San Antonio. They literally have one of the few labs in the country that does this exact work. And it just is so obvious that they didn't put the like lack of thought and care and planning here is so chilling. And it matters when it comes to like weight rooms, but like we're talking about a global pandemic, and they didn't even put the basic time in to figure out about the best way to protect these women's health when they're playing in this so-called bubble in a state that has now, we have, everything's 100% open, we have no masks, right? Or you don't have to have a mask on, I guess. Uh, And that part of it just dry, I mean, this is their lives, and they couldn't even take the time to care enough. Whew, Amira? Yeah, um, I would say that I was um, not not surprised about the subpar conditions and the afterthought of the tournament because it's been an afterthought. Um, I was most surprised that um, Ali's tweet went viral. Ali Kirshner's, uh, who's the Stanford performance coach, who put up her the photos of the weight room initially. And then the fact that the voices like Sidonia and, and stuff like that piling up on it created um, a way that you could not turn away from it, right? That it went viral, that it started trending. And I think that that, to me, is a little bit of what is different. Um, and then watching, obviously, the tournament officials like scramble to try to justify things. But of course, I have been, you know, talking to my cousin and 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 getting food pictures and things like that, and everything was kind of underwhelming from the get go, right? Like, uh, some of her teammates were unpacking the swag bags and were like, "Here's a random umbrella and here's a random water bottle," and it's like even like social media exists. We see, and a lot of them have connections and friends on the men's side, and something as simple as like disproportionate puzzle pieces in a puzzle like it's like even the details are aimed at reminding you that you don't matter so I was talking to Alexis who plays for Texas A&M and one of the things um that you know was really great is Texas A&M had provided them with their own kind of tournament swag box that had shoes multiple shoes and you know gear and like um, shirts about social justice and like all of these things and it was like a deep container and to go to the NCAA and to get to San Antonio and to have you know not even a red carpet roll just like not you know like every detail and when I say every detail I mean things like there was no kind of collective outdoor space available in San Antonio so like the most outdoor space they got was walking from the hotel 
to the COVID testing center that just just you know talked about. Um, whereas if you look at the tournament planning in Indy, there are outdoor spaces where people can get some air and safely congregate and things like that. And so I think that I think for me, um, it's the kind of detailed things that NCAA officials just bet on people not paying attention to. And when you line them up next to each other, one after another, after another, the picture, the irrefutable picture that is painted is constant reminders that you are not worth it, that you are not enough, that, you know, you should just be happy to get your 150 piece puzzle and an umbrella and like shoddy card to go to download a digital library. Like these are, these are the things, right? And then as, as Jessica just pointed out, there are some like larger considerations at play um, that aren't just affecting the players. And one of the things, one of these little details, for instance, is the way that the NCAA just absolutely dropped the ball in offering support for childcare and breastfeeding children for coaches in this tournament, um, mainly that they're counting against the the travel party limit, including nursing infants, right? And so um, this comes on the heels of like, you know, a year and a half or so of the NCAA putting out like, we support women coaches and absolutely you can be a coach and a mom and you can do all of that, but putting people in a position where they have to choose to like literally provide sustenance and life to nursing infants or, you know, knowing that counts against their travel party Um, or, you know, for, for people who are going to be in the, in the tournament, some people could be here for a month and not being able to, you know, I watched um, uh, one of Lex's assistant coach do a very emotional goodbye to her kid. Right. And these are, details that they hope that nobody will see but completely flies in the face of all the you know headlines and brochures and feel-good posters and all the bullshit that you knew was bullshit but I think it's moments like this where you can really see just how stark the contrast is between what they purport you know and what is happening especially as you know they're tweeting out about International Women's Day and Women's History Month and all you know empowerment and it's like no nah, we we see what your priorities really are you know and and I'm I'm glad it was I'm glad it went viral you know but it it shouldn't take it going viral for us to pay attention to these details it really shouldn't I mean they did I guess I don't even want to say the phrase to their credit but they did. Rare, in about 24 hours after this went viral, get a weight room up, which I think, A, shows how possible it was to do in the beginning and how this wasn't this impossible task. Like, you just had to put a teeny bit of effort into it. Although I do want to say, if anyone has seen the new the photos of the new weight room, there are these, like, blue and orange, like, mood lights popping up from the ground, like, all around that makes it feel like a spa, except it's obviously not a spa because it's obviously, a like, a, you know, there are these curtains. And for some reason, it just cracked me up because it was like, we still got to make things, you know, feel pretty. And I just want, like, yeah. a... Feminine. feminine. And I just want like a 10,000 word like piece on like how that lighting scheme came to be, <laughs> like whose idea it was and like the execution. But anyways, 
it's so much more, as we know, than just a rack of weights. It's just, it's not treating these women like they're elite athletes. And then at the end of the day, blaming them when they don't have the audience or the, um, you know, generate the revenue that the men do in, you know, this nonprofit place where they're not getting paid. But anyways, so one of my favorites was Sedona Prince's uh, video from TikTok, the Oregon player. Uh, it went viral. And it was, I have to say, as a film major, it was the perfect way to describe the situation. The beats, the reveal of the amount of space in the weight room, the use of the NCAA's quote, every single bit of it. There was not a bit of wasted space, including at the end when she said that if this doesn't bother you, you're part of the problem. You know, we talked about kind of the reactions and talked about the TikTok um, and how that went viral. But were there any any sort of reactions that that stood out to you, Jess? Yeah, I really appreciated all the WNBA players who like immediately put all this stuff on blast. And I thought it was interesting. Laisha Clarendon from the New York Liberty, they tweeted, I love this generation of college basketball players because the fearlessness they have to speak up about injustices is something I didn't have in college. The grateful and happy to be here women's athlete is a thing of the past. I'm celebrating that fact today. Proud of y'all. And I totally understand what Laisha is saying here. But I do think that this is as much a result of whatever's going on with this generation, but they are seeing these WNBA players standing up and speaking out and having a collective voice and saying this isn't good enough. They are watching all of these women's soccer teams across the world uh, come together and, and, and demand better and demand more and demand it now. And I think that you can't separate out what that is. I mean, COVID, I'm sure, plays a role in this and how everyone has shifted their understanding of their worth in this time. But I really... You know, I just I saw a lot of people responding to Alicia like, but you're part of the reason like, yeah, maybe you couldn't have done this in college, but you're the reason they can do this now. And then I just want to give a shout out to Cindy, uh, Cindy Colson of the Chicago Sky. She's hilarious. And so the first thing she did that I absolutely loved was she took this sort of sad picture of the one weight rack in the massage table and she photoshopped boxes of tampons underneath it and then tweeted, go girls. And that was just too good. And then she had this great video she did mocking the NCAA's response. And I just would tell everyone to go watch that. It is it is so funny. But yeah, I just he, seeing all of the professional women get behind all of this, all of the college players was really great. Amira? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And the fact that it also creates more of um, a, a safety net for people who do speak out. And that's really important because um, it's precarious, obviously, to to do what Sidonia did. Like, it, those are still risky moves. And when people with bigger platforms and out of the ability to, um, you know, the NCAA can't touch them, it matters, right? It, it lets them say things that that um, the players can. I know they're communicating um, with each other. And I think that that is, um, like you said, Jess, like it is, it is absolutely drawing upon um, the kind of tradition that we see coming. And the other thing that we see in that, right, is it's not only that it gives the opportunity for athletes to speak up, but it creates a um, uh, it kind of reinforces the platform that the women's college basketball coaches have. And we know that, you know, 
folks like Muffet McGraw and Don Staley have never pulled their punches before, right? But their ability to weigh in on the tournament that they're participating in also shown through this week with some amazing statements, right, Jess? Yeah, I think, so we have one from Don Staley, we have one from Muffet McGraw, who's obviously retired now, but still, and then uh, Tara Vanderveer from Stanford. And I think the thing, they're really pointed. They don't pull any punches they really go hard and they go really hard at the NCAA in particular so like Don wrote we need Mark Emeritt who is the president of the NCAA and remained pretty quiet through all this we need Mark Emeritt and his team to own this mistake and address these issues and the overarching issues that exist in our support I really Tara Vanderveer this is how her statement began a lot of what we've what we've all seen this week is evidence of blatant sexism this is purposeful and hurtful I feel betrayed by the NCAA Wow, right? I just, I think that this is so powerful. And one thing that it does do is it backs up these players who are particularly vulnerable within this system. And it allows, like, these coaches can take this heat, right? And these are, Muffet doesn't even work (laughs) on any of this anymore. They They can take it themselves. And I just, I'm super cynical about the NCAA. So I don't know what this means for next year's tournament, honestly. But it's really lovely to see that they are just saying it is the NCAA's fault and they need to be the ones to fix this. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also want to say you notice who's not releasing public statements as well um, during this. I notice the coaches and I'm disappointed in the coaches who haven't released public statements. And of course, uh, because there's there are not ASAP uh, transcripts, which is another inequity that there aren't uh, transcripts from every press conference given um, made publicly available until this Sweet 16 versus the men, which have them publicly available already. So unless you're in every single press conference, it's hard to know exactly who's being asked what and you know what's happening. Um, but I, you know, I've been hoping to see more from Brenda Freeze, who just was named coach of the year. Um, and a lot of these prominent male coaches as well within women's basketball, you know, I'd like to see, um, more pointed statements. Cause I just feel like it gives their players permission, right? It, like you're saying, it takes cover from the players and, um, and that's important. A- another thing that's been happening in the wake of all this is of course, it is important to say that like. The NCAA, I mean, this has all been so blatant that not even the NCAA could really, like, excuse them. Like, they had to just say, we're... we're but they still tried Well, they, they tried to give excuses, but ultimately had to say we're wrong, which I'm not giving them any credit. I'm just showing how bad this was because they avoid saying we're wrong at all costs. Yeah, <laughs> and part of it was that there were people before they blatantly said we did it, like, this is our fault. There were people who were still trying to give them a benefit of the doubt, right? Like, that this is... I'm sure it was going to get better. I'm sure that this wasn't... And it was like, They're no... Setting up yet. <laughs> yeah, that there was I just don't understand why people feel like they need to give these institutions that have this clear history of exploitation and of telling the women that they're lesser. Like it was wild to watch people give them the benefit of the doubt. And then it so there was a relief, I've got to say, for the NCAA to just say, This was our fault. We messed up. Because they don't normally even do that. Absolutely, but I do think that it's really instructive to watch the blueprints that like the playbooks they were trying to try on Mm 
yes. before that, right? And even if it happened fast, right? So first and foremost, it was like, we didn't have the space. We were going to do this at Sweet 16. We know that's faulty logic. We saw that video change that, right? But then very quickly saying, oh, the food issue, that's not on us. That's that's the hotel. Like that's, we'll work with them to do local food. But that that A is cover and B doesn't talk about how they're regulating people in, in restricting them even teams who want to order out to support their girls to eat in different ways, right? But you saw that move. They said, oh, the swag bags are equal value. And da, da, da. like, so there was all of these attempts to still do the walk back and the passing the ball and stuff like that. And you're right, like it was, it ended up being so, so spotlighted for so long that they absolutely had to, you know, walk that back. But it's not for Severe no. lack of trying. <laughs> I mean, severe True. attempts in in their in their in their um, own regard, and and not and when we're talking about public pressure, right? Like it's not just and this will you know lead us into talking about these corporations. You know, they're like, oh, we'll 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 adjust that, but it wouldn't have moved so fast if Orange Theory and Dix and Tonal hadn't said. No, we got you. Dix is tweeting a picture in turn two movie vans saying, we've loaded up equipment. We can be there to set up a thing. That's embarrassing. And that that mattered in terms of the speed in which they responded. But it's not because the NCAA like woke up and decided to give a damn this weekend. And I'm not saying that you're saying that what it is, but I'm saying that these are the things where you could see them trying to continue to be as awful as they usually are. And the things that, that created and pushed them to a place where they had to do at least the spa-like weight room. I do have to say, though, so there was. We saw, I think it was, you know, Orange Theory and, and Dick's and these, you know, a few corporations seize this moment. I got frustrated by that, too, though. Like, I got why it was important and why it was important in this, like, narrative. But as someone who covers the merchandise issue in uh, women's sports, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, Dick's is very quick to blame others and blame the pipeline and blame the people they work for for not providing enough, you know, women's merch. Um, Whereas if you look in their stores, you know, you just can't find any and they have power in this space. And, um, you know, there was, and it wasn't just, you know, that the corporation, it was all of these media entities, you know what I mean? The USA Today, um, the, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated, these places that like don't always do the best job covering ESPN. E- yeah, ESPN. I watched Jay Billis on ESPN go hard. And you're like, where are you all the other times, Jay? <laughs> where are you when they're being spectacular? ESPN has actually been a little bit better about it this tournament, which I must say they they hold the rights to the women's tournament. So there's there's that. But it'll be interesting to see how they actually handle it on the broadcast because we haven't we're recording before we've actually seen them broadcasting game. Like, and that to me is like right part and parcel of the frustration. Lindsay, you've talked about this before about like the disproportionate media coverage coverage of calamity, right? Whether it's like a fight or a scandal or whatnot, right? And it's so frustrating. Today the women's tournament will kick off of the 714 days of not having a women's tournament. They are this is a wide open tournament. The talent is ridiculous, right? And yet we're not we can't even we're like that's not even what all all First, of, Yeah, we're talking about curtains and a wait room. Right. All of these people who wanna be invested and wanna like generate clicks by being captain save a a, a team and showing up with their things like that's great but also like all of this energy can feel so frustrating if you're like 
it shouldn't have taken an edible food and, you know, a nicely shot TikTok video to compel this level of investment interest. And it also shouldn't be centered on the disparity and completely missing the fact that there is a wide open, very talented tournament that if we all like close our eyes about the pandemic and can force ourselves to enjoy to watch is about to kick off. And I think you're right. It will be very interesting to see a how they handle it in the broadcast, but also what coverage it looks like throughout the tournament, right? After this has kind of died down, is that same energy there? Is that same attention there? Is that same kind of command for respect and all of these kind of platitudes there? when we're talking about the game, when we're talking about the athletes, when we're talking about the performances. Um, that's what I'm waiting to see. You know, one of the one of the things I just want to make sure we stress is like this is just a, a a small part of a much bigger picture of Title IX still not being equal of when these, you know, I want to yell at every single media person who's making tweets about this and say, okay, if you're getting retweets for pointing this out, then by law, you have to say men's basketball and women's basketball or men's sports and women's sports. Like, or I'm like putting you in jail or something, right? Like stop referring, like part of this problem is like, uh, you know, the language, right? Of using basketball as the default to mean men's basketball and then women's basketball, which the NCAA does itself and it's branding. CBS portrays itself as the official NCAA tournament app, the official everything, but they only have rights to the men's tournament. And, it, you know, this is part of a much bigger picture. And Jess, I know you've covered a lot of title, bigger Title IX pictures here. And I wanted to see if you can just like, how does this, how does stuff like this play out on campuses every day? There's almost no school that meets Title IX requirements. I, would, I think it's almost impossible to find them. So we just have like a systemic problem around equity within sport. And yeah, back in 2017, I wrote a specific piece about this for SB Nation with my friend Avital uh, called Title Fight. And it was about the Quinnipiac women's rugby team. But it was stuff like they literally couldn't get a field to play on that was the right size. So they couldn't practice all of their moves the way they were supposed to. The fields would have lots of rocks, so they would literally injure themselves. But then they weren't given access to trainers. Like a lot of these women's teams just don't even have the same kind of like people to take care of their health, which we can talk all day about like tiny locker rooms or, you know, old equipment or borrowed uniforms and stuff. But like even basic stuff, I just can't get that. Like their health is not even a priority. And again, I'll just I say this all the time, and I know I am a broken record on it, but these are educational institutions. These are students, and this is how we treat them. So it is just a systemic endemic problem within sport everywhere, and I think we all know it, and I think that's part of why these things hit in the way that they do. Yeah, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there's also this kind of hashtag campaign going on, not NCAA property, um, which was a protest launched last week by Rutgers basketball player Gia Baker, Iowa's um, Jordan Bohannon, and Michigan's Isaiah Livers, um, who are all upperclassmen on men's Big Ten teams. And, um, you know, Baker had said, the NCAA owns my name and image and likeness. Um, and someone on music scholarships can profit from an album. Someone on academic scholarships can have tutor service for people who say an athletic scholarship is enough. Anything less than equal rights is never enough. I am hashtag not NCAA property. We saw, um, you know, livers actually wear his t-shirt, um, um, before the game, this weekend and that made a lot of news but I think there's been a lot of questioning of like first of all how are the women involved in this campaign and 
is this going to lead to any boycotts? Like, what are the changes we're seeing here? And also, how does the women's game incorporate it? Amir, do you have any thoughts on on that part of the activism? Yeah, I mean, like, I think there's two big things here. One, um, I think that the idea about leverage, right, like when the statement came out and they were trending the hashtag, a lot of the questions was, well, are they still going to play? Which, you know, we've talked about before, puts the burden right back on the shoulders of of fairly precarious unpaid laborers. Um, but also, I think that there's a way that um, you know, we separate these two discussions we're having when they're really tied together, right? So one of the things that you saw under comments about swag bags, or if you listen to certain, you know, ill-informed basketball player, men's basketball players, um, professional ones saying, oh, well, you're the GV, JV team. Like, it doesn't matter. You're obviously your food or your swag is not going to be equitable. Well, it really betrays this entire logic of the system. The idea that like your stakes and your like $150 swag bag is equitable compensation for the billions and dollars of the turn that the tournament's generating and then this like false idea about revenue and like oral roberts is not bringing the same revenue as gonzaga or as you know unc etc and they're still getting equitable swag bags right we have false ideas of a revenue b we expect all those revenue and interest without investment like we saw but also the logic here right of why the women don't deserve this is grounded in the idea that these little perks that the men's tournament is getting is what is given to athletes in lieu of compensation right and to justify the the continuation of an exploitative system that's generating billions of dollars off of these games and, and off of this labor and so I think that it's really important to have this conversation together and not to use women as a shield for name, image, and likeness. We've talked about this. Lindsay has done, um, you know, fantastic reporting as well as other people on how women athletes stand to benefit from name, image, likeness as well. And all of these things are wrapped up in together in in terms of how the NCA moves to harm its athletes. Everybody on the under the umbrella of that, and so I think that you know it's important to hold not not um NCAA property in conjunction with women's players speaking out and pointing to this moment of possibility that like keeping this this momentum right is important because it is representing a little bit more a step that's kind of tacking away um and and letting the NCAA know that it's not it's not always business as usual and that might not mean a boycott this year but I think that they are definitely I mean best believe there are there are panicked conversations happening inside the NCAA because it is indisputable that that a tide is rising and these players um and their voices are at the center of it and I wish them all a, a great tournament and a continued ability to speak out and and keep going Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. 
Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. An interview that I want to feature on this best of is Shireen Ahmed interviewing Dr. Sophia Azib. What I love about this particular interaction, um, this this conversation, is that Dr. Azeb brings to light some of the really complicated but exciting issues and possibilities around solidarity. And that's a theme that we've been developing all year. Her book project, Another Country, Constellations of Blackness and Afro-Arab Cultural Expression, looks at how blackness and black identity is translated, mobilized, and circulated and contested by African-American, Afro-Caribbean, African, and Afro-Arab cultural and political figures across North Africa and Europe. And I know that that sounds really complicated, and that's why this conversation needs to exist and that it's so worth listening to. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. Today, I have Dr. Sophia Azeb, who is an assistant professor of Black Studies in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Chicago. Her current book project, Another Country, Constellations of Blackness and Afro-Arab Cultural Expression, examines how Blackness and Black identity is variously translated, mobilized, circulated, and contested by African-American, Afro-Caribbean, African and Afro-Arab cultural and political figures across North Africa and Europe in the 20th century. She's a regular contributor to the Funambulist magazine. She's a dear friend, an educator, community organizer, and she loves popcorn. Doctora, hello. Hello, Shireen. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I wanted to take a minute to recognize our listeners who are grieving, who are saddened by any of the traumatic events happening, particularly in Palestine and around the world. As we know, oppression continues in many places. Um, I have wanted to have you on the show for a long time. I hate that this is the reason (laughs) that you're here, but I'm so grateful to you for coming on. I'm also really glad to be here and saddened that this is why we're coming together. Um, But yes, I it is an ongoing um, liberation struggle, um, and even with a ceasefire, uh, the violence has not stopped. Um, but I am so happy to just be here and recognize all of the work that so many people, um, cultural figures, people on the ground, um, are doing and have done, um, past and present. So. Bringing this in, and you're a big sports fan. We commiserate very often on Arsenal and the other football ongoings in the world. And um, 
one of the things is the, and I'll use this in quotation marks, the polarizing topic, I really hate that word, of Palestine and how it's been addressed in sports. And until very recently, we hadn't, we've seen examples of Khalid Kenute, uh, Michael Bennett has been public, and Yusuf Nurkic uh, has, of the mm-hmm. Portland Trailblazers, and recently Kyrie Irving. It's just too much going on in this world not to address. You know, it's, it's sad to see this shit going on. Um, and it's not just in Palestine, it's not just in Israel. It's all over the world, man, and I feel it. Were there more? Yeah, so so in days past, obviously, this has been um, at the forefront, and I'm sure many folks caught uh, Leicester City's uh, Hamza Chowdhury and Wesley Fafana uh, during the FA Cup final, um, carrying a Palestinian flag during celebrations, uh, as well as Man United's Paul Pogba and Ahmad Diallo um, lifting up Palestinian flags in support of Palestinians under Israeli bombardment in Gaza, as well as Palestinians who uh, face armed mobs in so-called mixed cities like Haifa and Lida, and also the Palestinians who face settler police and military violence um, throughout the West Bank and in occupied Jerusalem, uh, particularly but not only in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. So, you know, this is not a new um, phenomenon. Perhaps the only unusual thing I would note about this moment in comparison to sports figures in the past is that there has been a general refusal uh, by the footballing bodies to which these players uh, kind of belong to, to sanction them. And so this is really different than, um, let's say, Canute's experience uh, in 2009 um, when he celebrates a goal uh, while playing with Sevilla. Um, by lifting his you know, shirt or his jersey to reveal a Palestine shirt. And he was fined, as I recall, uh, about 4,000 U.S. dollars. Um, Mohammed Abu Trega, Egypt's, uh, one of Egypt's superstars, who's now in exile, of course, uh, from Egypt, uh, famously revealed a sympathize with Gaza shirt uh, beneath his jersey during a goal celebration. Um, while playing with the Egyptian national team during the 2008 African Cup of Nations. And, you know, these players were carded or sanctioned in other ways. Um, And so now I'm kind of like enjoying the the turnabout where, you know, the, the FA is like, yeah, we're not going to do anything about, <laughs> about this because there's a clear kind of sea change that I think really actually we have to think uh, the global black uprisings of the past many years, uh, in particular with black, the Black Lives Matter movement, for sort of changing how especially footballing bodies internationally have responded to politically active um, players, right? So, you know, football is not... Uh, uh, apolitical, and this has finally been like pushed in particular by Black uh, sports figures throughout the world and in the U.S. I mean, we're still not in the clear. I mean, for example, like Lavazza, the coffee giant that supports and sponsors Arsenal, is trying to find a way to actually fire Mohamed Elneny mm-hmm. for tweeting about it. So there's still this censorship, and there's still this policing of athletes globally and I think that while you're right the FA is just like we gotta we gotta step back a little bit but there's still ways in which these this particular type of activism is is so is so staunchly staunchly policed Mm. and what is it what is it Sophia that is so was so fiery about this topic like why why is it so fearful for people to discuss Philistine 
You know, I think a lot of people would have very different takes on why open advocacy for Palestinians and Palestinian liberation, in particular the end to the occupation, um, as well as the end to the siege on Gaza, I think a lot of people have very different answers uh, about why it's it's such a it seems like such a unique, uh, uniquely kind of hazardous or, or dangerous kind of a form of solidarity to enter into. And you know, I'm obviously I'm not unbiased as a Palestinian American. Um, I have my own kind of takes on it, um, and I think one of the resounding reasons, or I, I guess I'll kind of express this from the position um, that I am in as an academic. You know, I think there is a lot of uh, understandable kind of fear uh, about this being a religious conflict that's quote unquote ancient, right? And so like it would seem like, you know, why why would we weigh in at this moment? Like, I don't know enough, right? Or like anyone who kind of speaks up, it's like, have you... What is your knowledge? Like, what is what is the validity that you carry? Like, bring with you into this conversation. Um, so, th- I think that that kind of framing that this is like an ancient religious conflict, and and it's about indigeneity. But who's the indigenous peoples? We have no idea. Like, the Jews have a claim. The quote unquote Arabs have a claim. And I'm putting Arabs in quote because, of course, what we don't want to say is Palestinians. If we say Arabs or Muslims. <laughs> which is usually what we hear, it's easier to think of as sort of a a religious conflict. Um, When in reality, of course, we're talking about a settler colony, which is the state of Israel, um, that was in large part uh, established thanks to anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, Famously, right, uh, centuries-long anti-Semitism culminating um, in the Shoah. And in which uh, Jews who are Palestinian, who are Arabs, were also then caught up in um, and uh, exiled from Arab countries with the collusion of states like the UK, uh, as well as the state of Israel. And so what we're talking about is a settler colonial conflict. We're talking about colonization. And when you frame it like colonization, it's much easier to understand why so many sporting figures, not only, but I think particularly figures who bear a similar history of experience of colonization, right? Whether they are French, right? Like Pogba, um, who was born in France, right? Raised in France. And yet, right, has the experience of being an African French person and, you know, subject to as many uh, black and brown footballers are uh, incredible racial violence. That's like half of exactly. (laughs) It's like half of Les Bleus. It's literally like almost the entire squad, more than half. Right. And, and, you know, the, the sort of like, uh, black, blanc, beurre, uh, you know, celebration of like the 98 World Cup team, like falls really short of like actually acknowledging the, uh, endemic racism that these players have faced and continue to face, like from the great 98 team to the present. And so it's really easy to understand why people like Sadio Mane and Riyad Mahrez, Algerian, right? Um, uh, or Club Deportivo Palestino in Chile, uh, or Canute or Abu Treka are find it so easy to be invested, whether or not they are Palestinian. And actually, we haven't named any Palestinian players yet, um, but because they are they are commentating on uh, sometimes a religious connection, right? I think uh, especially we see Muslim footballers in Europe that come to knowledge about Palestine and the Palestinian liberation struggle through. Uh, a shared like faith uh, in Islam usually, 
but also I think primarily through an experience with racism and colonization, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is an experience that even very successful footballers experience, and it is not something that stops once they achieve that kind of visibility and fame. And so these players emerge out of a long tradition of other players who have used their platforms and mobilized them on behalf of others around the world. I mean, there's a, we're hearing about a lot of men in the struggle against occupation, ethnic cleansing, and settler colonialism. So where are the women? <laughs> like we're talking about, and you talked about leadership of a global mobilization movements of Black communities, and we know mm-hmm. that for Black Lives Matter, it's queer Black women who are at the forefront, like mm-hmm. the WNBA are at the forefront. Where's What's the barrier here? Like, where are the women in this? So, and this will now, I'm taking my scholarly hat off, and I'm going to put... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I want to I wanna, like, at first acknowledge this great statement that the Palestinian Feminist Collective um, recently issued. This is a U.S.-based network of Palestinian and Arab women and feminists um, who affirm that Palestine is a feminist issue. And this is important not only because also in the Palestinian liberation struggle, women have historically been at the forefront, right? Not only in terms of emotional labor, Mm -hmm. which I think we kind of get caught up in with the Black Freedom Movement, uh, with other third worldist uh, liberation movements like uh, Angola and Mozambique's wars for independence, uh, not only in emotional labor, but, you know, actively strategizing, right? And like boots on the ground uh, leaders of of this movement. And so um, I want to just read a small portion of the Palestinian Feminist Collective statement because I think it's actually really um, illuminating. Um, and in this statement, they, quote, uphold the legacies of solidarity between Palestinian, Black, Indigenous, third world feminist, working class, and queer communities, who struggle side by side with larger anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, and anti-racist movements in the U.S. and globally. And what it means to embrace Palestine as a feminist issue is to acknowledge and uplift and and kind of like throw our advocacy uh, towards Palestinian feminists who, quote, resist Israel's masculinist and militarized siege of Palestinian land and life. And what that means, and I'm not going to speak for the collective at this point, What that means for me, Israel's masculinist and militarized siege of Palestinian land and life, is look at how even in these last two weeks, deaths on the ground are reported. It's Mm -hmm. not men, women, and children, right, who Mm -hmm. are targeted by uh, naval strikes or Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. It's including women and children, right? So what are the Palestinian men in this scenario? Well, ostensibly, I guess we're supposed to imagine that they are the ones leading the charge. Whether you are pro-Palestine or not, you are imagining Palestinian men are somehow like directly involved in the struggle in a way that women are not, right? Women and children are cowering over here. But the thing is, is that men, women, and children and people of all genders, right, are equally subject to this violence. And so it is... Uh, the obligation, right, and unfortunately the responsibility that falls on all Palestinian peoples and all marginalized peoples, um, particularly those most exploited within those kinds of gendered structures in a society or racialized structures in a society that is besieged, um, to kind of be the ones who have to take up um, the charge and to lead the way. And so a masculinist and militarized siege is both on the part of the Israeli state, representing Palestinian men as threats, 
Um, but there was a time not too long ago, especially during the first Intifada, where Palestinian women were equally frightening. Um, we can look to the French colonization of Algeria, right? Algerian women <laughs> were like the biggest threat because, you know, the, the whole purpose of unveiling the Algerian woman was so that they couldn't like smuggle arms um, into uh, French areas of Algeria. And you see that, you know, depicted really beautifully in uh, Gio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of a long-winded sort of response, but it is to say that um, women, Palestinian women, have always been at the forefront and will remain at the forefront of this struggle, struggle. And Palestinian queer people in particular have done so much work, particularly in communicating to folks in the West who want to be in solidarity with Palestine, but have perhaps sort of retrograde ideas about Palestinian or Muslim or Arab relations to gender and sexuality and, and gender expression. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of folks um, that won't ever get the due that they deserve, but are leading the struggle nonetheless. And we've seen, it's not as if we haven't seen this documented, like Amber Faris came out with this documentary called Speed Sisters mm. and, and in 2015 and talking about using speed racing to bring mm. attention to and amplify not only that they're women, because again, there's the conflation of they're Arab, they're Arab, no one wants to say <laughs> Palestinian, and they can't drive, but they're race car driving, mm -hmm. they're drag racing. And that was really powerful. And we've heard, you know, Hani Talija is a Palestinian a Christian woman mm -hmm. who has worked with FIFA about amplifying opportunity. But since then, because we know the infrastructure is being bombed, we know intentional mm -hmm. destruction of sporting places in Gaza is being destroyed to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of affect the mental health and the possibility and feelings of hope of youth there mm -hmm. through sport, because um, sport can be a vehicle for, you know, confidence and empowerment and, and, and healing for many youth all over the world, we see it. But since then, because that's, that's like 2015, that's a while ago. It's not to say that are there movements on the ground using sports within Gaza and occupied places in Palestine to help youth? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I have an answer to that just because it's not something I've really looked closely at myself. Of course, now I want to look into that. <laughs> yeah, let's co-write something. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you're you're right. Like, sport is an avenue towards um, you know kind of building up the self and 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 the nation right like culture is, is super important to that um, I think what's really interesting is to look at this kind of the critical attacks on Palestinian cultural life um, that is not only limited to denying the tools or travel necessary to play so uh, the Israeli state has a long record of denying travel visas to players in Gaza as well as the West Bank. Um, I'm going to use Palestine as a shorthand from now on because it is Palestine. Uh, so for both domestic and international tournaments, right? So uh, this is a regular occurrence in which uh, Palestine, you know, in 2006 was eliminated from the World Cup because they were the entire team was denied travel permits by the state of Israel. Um, and at the time, FIFA Deputy General Secretary uh, Jérôme Champagne, I don't actually know how to say their name. Jérôme Valky. But, you know, at the time he said this thing when he refused to reschedule the match, um, which was football cannot go faster than politics. But, of course, it has to because in 2007, the Israeli blockade on Gaza also banned one particular item from being imported, which were soccer balls. 
like the actual way that you play the game. Um, in July 2014, two teenage footballers were shot in the feet and the legs by Israeli soldiers while walking home from a training session mm-hmm. um, from a stadium in Jerusalem. And then, of course, there is uh, a moment that really resonated internationally in a way that maybe had not reached uh, audiences that tend to be skeptical of uh, the situation that Palestinians have endured for 73 years, which was when four children were murdered by an Israeli naval shell uh, while playing football in a beach in Gaza. And they were two 10-year-olds, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And so this like deep resistance to the occupation that takes place within Palestinian cultural life, right, in, in committing, recommitting to a cultural life, um, is not just symbolic, right? So football cannot go faster than politics, um, I would say is a, a deep misnomer because, in fact, sport is moving much faster than the political life um, of, let's say, international sporting organizations mm-hmm. because it is so much more urgent um, that this is not just something, a sport that we love to watch and, and you know, heckle each other about, um, but it is something that expresses the cultural life uh, of peoples all around the world. Uh, it's a it's a moment of connection, and I know um, our friend, formerly football as a country, hated when people would say football as a language. But I honestly, I'm still attached to that sentiment. Um, that sport is a language that draws people together, and you see that with the number of sports sporting figures who, in spite of you know either tacit or uh, literal threats for their careers. Um, continue to vocally stand up for Palestinians and for Palestinian liberation. I also agree that uh, football is a language. I think it's a way to communicate. I think it's a connector. Mm-hmm. I don't like the word unite because I, I'm just tired of words that are over. <laughs> I don't like diversity. I like there's words that I just stay away That's from. True. And one of them is, <laughs> is unite. That makes me so irritated. But th- it's, it's a way to connect. Like you can go anywhere yeah. in the world. I was in Jordan a couple of years ago. You can play in the street, Quran in the street. You can go in Brazil. I was there playing in, in um, Foste Guasu. Like, do you know what mm. I mean? Like you don't have to talk. You can just come and use this as a form of communication. Um, and Absolutely. I think that's, and there's, you know, there's still that resistance that I see of athletes not talking about it. Like we see it's very brave of Pogba. And when I use the word brave carefully, because I don't think that that should be, but recognizing that not everybody's in the space to be able to speak openly. It can be harmful, mm-hmm. you know, to their, uh, I say this as a journalist, is a country where journalists mm-hmm. are being policed for what they say on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, like, not, there's the road is wide to activism, you know, I, there's many ways to disrupt and not everybody can be as public. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've struggled with Zinedine Zidane, whom I will say Dr. Azab loves as much or if not more than I do, the only other person on the planet who I can say that about. But why he didn't speak up more, you know, at the time, but mm. then understanding that they're restricted because if they're associated with Fédération Française du Football, they can't. So mm. they're, they're restricted. But then, so Pogba will use his Manchester space to be able mm-hmm. to do it. So there's this, it's a very intentional way. Like, you're not going to see this man with a flag when he's playing for a country. He can do it for a club. So... I mean, how much grace do you afford athletes? That's my little spiel. How much grace do you (laughs) afford athletes in not speaking up about this? I feel like I change my mind on this like every week, honestly, because sometimes it is so frustrating. Um, 
particularly last summer, right, in the midst of this global uprising um, led by uh, Black people around the world uh, in response to the shooting death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer um, and all of the previous and subsequent uh, state-sanctioned murders of Black people in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere, it's it's always frustrating, right? That that like certain sporting figures will not speak out in those moments, and and you just really crave them saying something. Um, and yet, you're you're right. I think that I've kind of afforded some grace to folks like Mohammed Salah, for instance, who yes has in the past been quite vocal um, in solidarity with Palestinians, but is under the eye of the Egyptian surveillance state. Yeah. And so yeah. when I think about Elneny and Salah and other international footballers and sporting figures who are from authoritarian countries and, re- and retain their citizenship in those nations, mm-hmm. they're all looking at somebody like Mohammed Abu Trika, who lives in exile, who had his assets seized by the Egyptian government. Um, because the thing is, is when it wasn't politically popular the Egyptian state was more than happy to throw these figures under the bus, right, and accuse them of Islamism or, or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I, I want Mohammed Salah to say more than, like, stop the violence. Or I think that was what was he tweeted or, or put on Instagram the other day. I was like, oh, this is so boring. Um, but then I remember, right, yeah, Salah and many, many other figures, they have family back home. You know, and and I try to remember that and, and give them grace, and and so the reality is also that yes, I we cannot know the interior lives of all of these figures who are very public to us mm-hmm. through their um, you know participation in in you know international and national sporting, um, but you know there may be other concerns that we don't know about. So I'm I'm trying, you know, to be. To be generous, um, I I will not be generous to all the um, famous post-colonial theorists who have yet to say anything about Palestine, though. They absolutely can, and they don't want to. No, I see them. I see them quoting Edward Said and then staying silent. Like, come mm-hmm. on, like, white feminist academics, you don't think I see you? You know what I'm saying? Um, so here's the thing. Circling back to the question about women, and not only specific to women, but I want to be mindful. Athletes in the North America and the Global North context may not know about this. What can we do as supporters, as fans, as people that are in the game, as media to help? Because I feel like there's a there's a disconnect. Like I said, you've got like Michael Bennett out there who is very much influenced by understanding, but he's few and far between. And if those that don't have a connection, whether it's to Islam or culturally to Arabs or have had experience with those communities and interconnectivity, how do how do we share this stuff? How does this information get disseminated to athletes and to sports communities in Turtle Island, North America spaces? You know, there's this great um, magazine, Jewish Currents, and they have they recently did a podcast the other day. They're just trying out podcasts, so it's it's not yet as good as Burn It All Down, but uh, <laughs> where it was in a very perpendicular way, like a, a similar question, which is like, how do you talk to your Jewish relatives about Palestine, right? You know, like how do we do this in our own communities? Um, and essentially, I think the question is, how do you talk to people who have mostly an emotional and affective uh, relationship to the state of Israel, 
um, but may not actually have thought very deeply or had reason to think very deeply about like what a settler colony is, right? Um, whether in Turtle Island and across Turtle Island or elsewhere overseas, Kashmir or Palestine and, and so on and so forth. Um, how do you broach that conversation with like your fellow, you know, supporters of Arsenal? Well, <laughs> we could ask the Celtics for <laughs> tips on that. Oh yeah, the Celtics are fantastic. <laughs> right, ride or dies. Like Absolutely. they will never not be in solidarity with like all marginalized peoples. For those that don't know, we're not talking about the Boston Celtics. We're talking about the <laughs> Scottish League, the football league. The Celtics are a team in Scotland that have been unequivocally supportive of Palestine. They have flags at their matches and they're just, yes, they're they're like a blueprint for how to do this in anti-oppression in sports. Yeah. And it's not separate, right? It's not a tangential issue. It is deeply informed by this is a Glaswegian team, right? So like by a particular historical relationship that many uh, of their supporters feel that they also have with empire. And I think it's actually, I don't think metaphor is always the way to go. And in fact, I think there's a lot of limits to like building solidarity out of analogy. But if you look at people like Muhammad Ali, if we look at folks like Sadio Mane, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Cantona, like mm-hmm. it's they're not speaking out of a deep well of like study, you know, for the most part of the relationship with Palestine and Palestinian liberation, but because they felt the call, you know, as people whose fans and whose like political, national, cultural affiliations sort of demanded their attention to the issue. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sometimes as simple as saying, well, why would the you know Celtics have this deep relationship to Palestine? Why is Paul Pogba and Wesley Fofana, you know, Fofana, who's from Marseille, mm-hmm. um, why are they grabbing Palestinian flags on and running them down the pitch? Like, I think asking that question is just a really great way to maybe provoke yourself and your community into thinking about like, they're not Palestinian. Why do these people who ostensibly have no connection to this issue care so much? And I know that's kind of like, you know, facile, but I think it's a really good question to ask. And it's it's something that if you just ask yourself that question when you encounter something that seems, you know, quite bizarre, um, <laughs> is just a good way to start thinking like, all right, so what is the connection? What connection does Cantona have to Palestine? He's not Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Right. What connection do these French players, uh, you know, have to Palestine, to Algeria, like to racism in France, to Islamophobia within Europe? You know, these are some of the pathways, but they're not the only pathways. And I think one of the things that you brought up, Muhammad Ali, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about him in the sense of that part of not addressing his Islam or even his connection to being pro-Palestinian and visiting refugees and, and talking about this issue is a part of the whitewashing of his history. And, you know, he was the greatest and and, and arguably one of the most powerful of, if not the most powerful, athlete activists we've ever seen. And you know, this part of his history is often omitted. And, it, you know, it gives you pause as to why, because this situation, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, but, you know, and, and, and speaking of Michael Bennett that I've mentioned, and he's a friend of the show, that he has specifically remarked that Muhammad Ali was his role model for this, of how to go about it. Because Muhammad Ali, 
you know, embraced Islam later. He became Muslim later in his life, um, but had a connection and understanding to oppression and combating oppression. And that's what this was about. Although, you know, some people may not know that Jerusalem in itself is the third holiest city for Muslims in the world. And there is a mm-hmm. spiritual, deep spiritual connection there. But mm-hmm. his his connection was the same way he rejected Vietnam, uh, participating mm-hmm. in the Vietnam War. It was on a basis of colonialism, and it was on a basis of anti-imperialism, and it was on a basis of fighting oppression. So, I mean, my, my question is, do we still look to him as that blueprint? Or do you think there's more emerging? I think Muhammad Ali is a wonderful representation of a long history of resistance to the Israeli occupation of Palestine that has always been deeply intertwined with pan-African, pan-Arab, and third-worldist tri-continental solidarities. And Muhammad Ali who was beloved throughout the world and then not beloved and then beloved throughout the world again, right? In this kind of like evolution um, of his political life and how that is parlayed to different publics was stridently pro-Black, but also anti-colonial and anti-capitalist. These were commitments that he had to the idea that to this phrase that so many of us have heard over the last few years, that none of us are free until all of us are free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at Ali's evolution, like I think something that's really important is I try really hard in my own life um, and practice, especially as an organizer, not to exceptionalize Palestine. And what I mean by that is not to minimize or flatten like the profound like sorrow and violence, um, also the profound like resilience and resistance um, that characterizes uh, Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle, but also to note that like we are always learning from one another, mm-hmm. and so Muhammad Ali represents this kind of. It's not natural, it's not organic, but a sort of trajectory that we can all kind of commit to where we note the connective tissue, not Mm -hmm. the sameness, but the connective tissue across different struggles. So you're right. Ali, like Malcolm X, people who come to Islam or are Muslim, uh, who find themselves increasingly then informed about, let's say, like a Muslim international, including many but not all Palestinians. But Islam is not the only throughway, right? It's also a deep commitment to anti-colonialism, a deep mm-hmm. commitment to anti-capitalism, a deep commitment to blackness, right, and black liberation. And this is a trajectory that is not restricted to somebody who is, you know, Muhammad Ali, (laughs) this is a trajectory that many of us um, can opt into. And that kind of brings back to me, you know, this sort of really early history of organized uh, resistance to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, which actually goes back to like the first African nations who were admitted into FIFA, Mm. um, which is Egypt in 1934, I believe and Sudan um, in 1948. And Egypt and Sudan uh, in one of the first uh, World Cup 
qualifiers that they were eligible for immediately boycotted because they were slated to play the Israeli national team. The Israeli national mm. team, which was actually uh, emerged in in the 1930s, I believe, as the cultural arm of the Zionist movement, right? So a way that sport is also mobilized like for nationalist purposes um, and not for liberatory purposes. Um, and the Palestine Football Association, founded um, in 1952, was not recognized by FIFA until 1998, right? That's so there's, right. there's yeah. this larger history. Um, and so within that, like when you need to be recognized by something like FIFA in order to participate in these international tournaments, it's not just on the basis of shared space or religion or racial identity or even shared struggle um, that leads to these kind of political commitments by cultural institutions, such as uh, sporting teams or amongst individual sports players. Um, But it's the commitment to say, we are not going to recognize what is a settler colony imposed Mm -hmm. uh, onto Palestine by European nations and by the United Nations. Um, We're not going to recognize it to the point that we will not play them on the pitch, right? And so I believe in 1958, uh, Israel qualified for the World Cup without playing a single qualifying match because nobody would play them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> nobody would play them. And that's and it's really interesting to also note that they're actually a part of, to avoid that moving forward, they were moved to yeah. UEFA to play in the European and they don't play in the Asian Confederation, which is you know, sort of geographically where they belong. So that was something else that, you know, the loophole that was found. And we talk about it on the show, Brenda, Dr. Brenda oh, Elsie yeah. is very critical of that. And we've talked about the spaces and the way that occupied land has been used. Mm-hmm. Stolen land is used to satisfy the state of Israel's league and many, many other things that keep coming up. So it's really funny to like round this off and say, oh yeah, sports is, you know, people, the naysayers, sports isn't political. Oh, it is historically in every context. Always. But always. Right. Um, and that's how you and I actually connected was through mm-hmm. those intersections of sport and football, particularly. Um, Soph is a, a killer player too. Um, <laughs> Not anymore. Not, well, I mean, none of us are. I haven't, play, I haven't touched the pitch in a year. It'll take me a year just to be able to get back to maybe. So just to move this a little bit, and we're talking about these things that are heavy and being mindful of holding space, but also one of the most beautiful things that I've had the opportunity to witness and participate in from chosen family that is Palestine is holding joy through all this. How are you doing, Soph? And how are you holding joy in this time? Oh, my therapist and I talked about this yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I find it, especially in the context that we are all in around the globe um, with the panini going on, that it has been very easy to fall into doom scrolling and being very frustrated and worried and feeling useless, um, you know, and wanting to help and not being able to do anything. But then I remember that, um, you know, I have all of these accomplices all around the world and that we all do. And Mm -hmm. I seek them out, right, virtually and otherwise. And it's, it's a great way to make space to just like make some popcorn and gaze at a framed photo I have of Zinedine Zidane and, you know, text... (laughs) text my friends about anything except for how Arsenal is doing right now. Um, So that's what I'm trying to do. And gardening. I'm trying my hand at that. I'm not really good at it. Oh, how's that going? 
I don't think I really have the skills for this. I I don't know. We'll see what happens. I have a feeling I'm going to be looking at a lot of really sad pepper plants in a few weeks. Okay. Well, hopefully, I, I mean, I wish you the best. I have a basil who's really angry with me right now. <laughs> they're so, like, they're temperamental. And I'm Very. like, y'all, I raised four kids. Do I need this grief? But I have a balcony, little balcony garden thing happening. I have, uh, I think I overwater. It's the brown auntie in me oh, that's yeah. constantly trying to feed. So I have, I have drowned uh, plants before. <laughs> And yeah, my son's lurking, laughing at me because, like, you know, I have a black thumb. But um, I think that's really important to say of also being in activist spaces and taking some time for yourself, you know, and putting that mask on and self care as part of self preservation. And it's a form of political warfare, which is what Audre Lorde said. And I want to thank you for being here because this is probably, you know, the most also you know, therapeutic for me is to be able to talk and discuss Mm. and share information. And I thank you very deeply for having this conversation with me because it's not one that we hear out there very much in the sports world to begin with. And, you know, I thank you for that. Um, Lastly, where can our listeners find you and your work? Oh, I'm a sad academic. So a lot of it's behind paywalls, but um, I really value the contributions I've done for the Funambulist magazine. Um, and I'm on tweeters, uh, <laughs> brown is the color. Um, and I'm happy to always email people things that are behind the paywall. So don't be shy. I'm inarticulate today, but usually, you know, a little bit more put together. I, I think you're perfect. And I thank you so much. And I hope I get to see you again. The last time we hung out, we were looking around public libraries in New York City. And that was a lot of fun. I still have the selfies from that day. Um, so shukran kathiran so much for this. Your your presence is is so wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing this so brilliantly and in, in a way that we can understand. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So that's it for this best of episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstig. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire podcast network. I also do want to take a moment and um, send out my particular thanks to Allie Lemer, who did produce episode 198, the segment that you heard, the NCAA is still laughably sexist. So thank you so much, Allie, for your work on that episode. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and read the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. It's actually sometimes a real joy to read. So... Um, again, if you get if if you get sick of listening, don't don't be afraid to go there. You'll also find links to our merch at our bonfire store if you want, you know, some very belated holiday presents. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. I'm Brenda Elsie, and on behalf of all of my wonderful co-hosts, burn on and not out.